welcome back to Plus This. I'm Kathy Deach, and we're back in the studio because last week I really tried it and tried to do this without <laughs> UBN and their crew, and it was like hollering, laughing, ridiculous. I went back and watched it myself because I could not believe what happened. And Nikki was there with me, and she is today too. Um, Nikki Bailey is here, everyone, um, to help co-host hey, this tonight. She's coming from her cute, cute office, which I just love, um, and her cute lipstick bomb. Thank uh, you. Yes, happy Thursday, my love. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I, I I had a nice little relaxation, energetic healing thing today, distance healing thing today. That was very nice and meditative. So I'm feeling very like, I'm on it. I got it. It's all good. That's great. That's great. And um, I love that you have a little animal print in your background. And I have, if you're not watching at home, a full leopard jumpsuit that I got from Avenue, who has been bought by City Chic. I'm supporting um, and it really was, it, it wasn't really because of the Tiger King documentary series. If you're not watching it on Netflix, just get your life and start watching it. It, cause I, it, I'm not really like supporting that life, but I will say that Marcy from the plus bus did such a funny Facebook live special edition, Tiger King edition, where she like pulled every piece of animal print from the store and like was so she was hilarious she is such a pop culture queen so i'm wearing this sort of like in order to plug her because i love her um but really i want us to talk about um our guests a little bit i mean you know what's kind of fun about the plus this and doing vodcast now is that everyone's at home so people aren't like traveling across the country anymore <laughs> <laughs> and there you're like and everyone's skyping or zooming so it's like okay that people are doing that and even though we love having people together in the studio um i get to hit up all these like really cool awesome people i see on instagram that i usually are traveling and i'm like i know everyone's home can you do this with me um so uh we have an incredible author of a book anti-diet reclaim your life money well-being and happiness through intuitive eating I mean, that is like the truest, bombest title of the book ever. And um, she is an anti-diet nutritionist and all kinds of things, actually. She has many, many letters after her name. Uh, and really, I've been, and I know, Nikki, you have too. She writes such good memes about anti-diet culture, you know, trying to Her create... Instagram is fire. If Ugh, you have, it's you have so fire. And her Twitter, fire. if you prefer Twitter, if you don't like Instagram, I know a lot of people don't. Um, it, she really has helped me through a lot of tough times, but particularly this tough time, she's speaking such like Bibles of truth on all of the social medias that we wanted to have a chat with her. It's uh, Christy Harrison is here. Hi, Christy. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my gosh. It's so glad to finally meet you, even if it's virtually. We'll get you to L.A. when all of this is over. How's that? Yes. <laughs> I was supposed to come to L.A. actually at the end of April for a talk, and I was going to do some book stuff while I was there. And it's just like, nope, fully shut down, not happening. So Well, open once, invitation. Well, actually, one of the things is still happening online. But yeah, okay, once, well, once this all happens. Yeah, you know. when this is all over and people reorganizing and you feel like you're going to come back, open invitation to have you here. Oh, please. please. Thank come. you. It's awesome. Um. So Nikki and I, I, I don't think we've really been shy about our troubles with food and um, our, you know, to the point of feeling like we needed a 12-step program for some of our food issues. Uh, I mean, I definitely think that I have evolved in my idea about eating. I think I was, I think I had obsessive thoughts about food because of wanting to be small and once I got rid of the feeling like I needed to be small those feelings went away um but I will say that I when I was in 12-step I had a crazy pink cloud moment when people were like you don't have to plan anything you don't have to follow any kind of food plan like a not having a food plan might be your plan and I that was the first time I was like what <laughs> like I don't have to care about what I eat and um, 
you know, the freedom of that, I think, was the start of it. And um, I was just wondering for um, the work you do, what do you feel like is the question that people come to you the most with? Like, what do you what do you feel like most people lead with in the work that you do? That's a great question. I think it's like either how do I stop binging or how do I stop eating when I'm full or how do I stop eating so much sugar or insert quote unquote bad food here, right? Um, so it's all, all about kind of like, how do I stop doing this and start becoming more of the eater that I'm supposed to be, the like thin person that's trapped inside me? I think that's the subtext of a lot of it, even if people don't say that. It's like, how do I stop eating so that I will stop gaining weight or so that I will lose weight? And then you feel like you have to sort of turn that around probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, even, I mean, like with what I put out there and the marketing that I do and what people know me for, I think I'm known enough for anti-diet stuff that most of the time people don't come to me directly asking for weight loss. They come to me with more, you know, they think that they're anti-dieting. They think that they're off the diet train. They think that they're starting to engage in intuitive eating. And they'll ask these questions that sort of reveal this like deep well of diet culture that still needs to be unpacked. And, and I think that's where, you know, the really interesting work is. I love working with clients who are in that space of like wanting to give up dieting and believing they've given up dieting and then helping them see, oh, actually I'm still holding on to dieting in so many covert and small ways, you know, even including this desire to stop binging or stop eating emotionally or stop eating so much sugar or whatever it might be. That's actually coming from the diet mentality. And that's actually coming from this desire to be thin and this desire to meet societal standards of what, you know, so-called good and bad foods are. And and by extension, good and bad people. Because, you know, diet culture really is this moralizing um, set of beliefs that moralizes about food, you know, demonizes some foods while elevating others, stigmatizes larger bodies while lionizing smaller ones, and oppressing people who don't match up with that supposed picture of health. So, you know, really unpacking all of that, that the belief system that we've all inherited growing up in this culture, you know, takes a long time. And it's, it's a quite a process. But, you know, the initial question usually is something like, how do I stop doing X, Y, Z? Yeah. Um, Nikki, do you have something to add? Yeah, please. I was going to say, I really love that you said that once you you sort of let go of that, uh, I need to be thinner idea, uh, some of the sort of compulsive behavior around food changed for you. And that's interesting for me because I I found that, um, you know, I've been on this sort of like anti-diet you know, health at every size, fat activism thing for a really long time. And at the same time, even after six years of therapy with an eating disorder specialist, even after 12, you know, 12 step groups and all that, I still have those, um, those obsessive, those compulsive and obsessive thoughts about food. Like those things didn't go away for me. And, you know, even now that I'm like, it's funny because I can like intellectually think about it while I'm while I am doing it. I am thinking on a, the, the, the diet culture part of my brain is like, do you really need to have this right now? Like, what are you doing? And the and the the, the, the part of me that is like health at every size is like, girl, eat your food. Calm down. Um, <laughs> so I think it's really one of those things that like it's not like a for, for me, at least it's not like a one and done. It's a, an ongoing process. So I, I'm, I'm curious about sort of the, some of the tools for, for those who are both new to this idea, but also for those of us who have been on this train, riding this train for decades and still are like, what? <laughs> mm, totally. I think it's, it is such a process, right? Cause we've been inculcated and indoctrinated into diet culture from day one. And sometimes even from before day one, like our parents, when we were in the womb, we're dieting or we're told not to gain too much weight or we're restricted or we're deprived of food from food insecurity or what, what have you. So I think all of us have this legacy of trauma around food and bodies. And for folks who've been more marginalized or had more economic insecurity or trauma in their lives, I think that is compounded. 
And so I think it, it definitely can be such a process more so than, you know, I, I definitely know people who fall into both camps, I think, of what you both are saying, where Kathy was like, as soon as I gave up that desire to be thinner, the food stuff kind of fell into place. And people who were more like you, Nikki, who were like, you know, I've got my mindset. I feel like it's, it's on board with health at every size and anti-diet, and I'm still struggling. And so I think that, you know, in both cases, there is this deeper mindset work that often needs to happen around, you know, uncovering those hidden diet culture beliefs and maybe diet culture trauma that you've been through or other forms of trauma of deprivation with food and, and body stuff. So uh, I've seen people who sort of uncover in the work that we're doing together, like, oh my God, you know, we were poor when I was a kid, we were food insecure. We had food stamps for maybe even just a short period of time. You know, maybe it was like, there was a moment of poverty and food insecurity, and then the rest of their childhood was like relatively privileged. But that one moment is is really deeply lodged in there. And of course, for people who've had years and years of that stuff, it's even more compounded where, you know, the restrict binge cycle gets sort of inculcated by not having food and access to food and then having all of the food available like at the beginning of the month and then you know being able to eat what you want and feel secure with food but sort of needing to know and needing to reassure yourself that you're secure with food that you can really have whatever you want and then you know because you know at the end of the month the food's going to be gone the money's going to be gone and you're going to be hungry again and so that sort of situation, that sort of legacy can really create lasting trauma in people's relationships with food. Also, you know, just parental dieting and parental um, either modeling of dieting or foisting of dieting onto you as the child can be really traumatic and really deeply embedded in there so that your idea of what it means to be a grown woman, for example, might be really wedded to needing to diet or your idea of what it is to be loved might be tied up with restrict and binge sort of cycles or with, with food, you know, food being used as a source of love in a context maybe where deprivation was also happening. So I think all of those things, you know, can create a more difficult, you know, make it more difficult to untangle um, those diet culture ties and diet culture roots in your life. I've literally recognized so every single thing you said. Every <laughs> single like, thing. It's Boy. like, oh, yeah. I'm sitting here just nodding my head like, <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. that too, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially, um, you know, Especially the when you're saying like the insecurity. I mean, Nikki and I have kidded a lot about um, how clever our parents were saying it's breakfast for dinner. Like it was like a big fun thing. And then you realize when you're older, it's like, no, dad got the stale bread from the discount place. You know what I mean? And managed to find some eggs that were cheap. And so we had French toast. You know what I mean? Like your your parents sort of find these ways to make food insecurity sort of fun. And so then there's such a familial attachment to that, too. You know, a lot of my struggle when I was in program um, was feeling like an outsider to my family, like me trying to see eating a different way or feeling like I wanted to challenge those ideas about food became something that made me separate from my family. And that hurt, like not participating in the things that we participate at home and and feeling like us eating this way is the way we our family does this and it especially when you feel like you're somebody who lives away from home and you'll feel like an outsider already like that really can exacerbate when you are challenging those ideas and I know for a while my mother and I would have sort of like staring contests at our plates um I don't know that she ever would admit that and I love my mother very much you know she's a great mom um but they're definitely she had a lot of feelings about what I was eating all the time and and what I was participating in with the family and what I wasn't it was it was it's so everything you're saying Nikki I'm sure you have things that you're feeling about that too yeah I was just remembering my mom had this uh this habit of if you were eating with her, if there was something blocking her ability to see your plate, she would move that thing so she could see your plate and watch what you were eating. So like I would intentionally put the box of cereal in front of her so she couldn't see my bowl of cereal and then watch her slide it away. Like, and, and even after I moved away from home, 
her first question was, what did you eat today? You know, like, and it, and it, and it was, it was policing. And as much as it was also making sure that I was getting enough food while, you know, when I was away from home, but I kind of grew up with this feeling that like, um, you know, like we had food, but you know, food, like the good food was hidden because I had a, I had a, a thin brother. And so they would hide food for him that was just for him. And then, you know, and then I would find it and then I would sneak it and eat it. And then I'd get in trouble for sneaking it and eating it. So there's like, so, and so even now, like I will hide food from myself now. And it's weird because like in my mind, I am completely done with all my food issues, but I know that I'm not <laughs> because I still do. Like I still hide food from myself and I still, you know, when all of this COVID-19 thing started, um, my first thought was we have to get more food. Like we can't, like, what if we run out of food? I wasn't even worried about the contagion. <laughs> mm. So it's just really interesting how deeply entrenched in us it is and how far back it goes. I mean, I was on my first diet when I was in kindergarten. So mm. it, you know, it, it, it's, it's so complicated and so deeply embedded in who I am as a person that it's sort of like, I'm always peeling away a little layer of it and a little layer of it, which is why it's so important to be able to access resources like like you Christy because you know like some days I don't like I look at your Instagram and I'm like oh right yeah okay I don't have to do that I don't have to be freaked out about you know <laughs> like I can just have this so yeah Christy this time oh, is so really triggering people yeah I, I would think that you're probably seeing a lot of people triggered but at this time oh yeah yeah, I mean, what you were saying about, you know, wanting to make sure you had enough food, I think is really the case for a lot of people, and especially anyone who's had any sort of history with food deprivation, whether that was from dieting imposed on them at a, at a young age, or dieting that they engaged in later in life, or food insecurity that was imposed on them from outside, or even some people, you know, I would say the vast, vast majority of people in this culture have some form of disordered eating, just because we live in diet culture, and that is you know, the water we're swimming in, but even those rare folks who don't have any food issues, who never did, and who are, you know, grew up with food security and intuitive eating and all of that are, are being triggered now as well. You know, I'm seeing it in people kind of all across the spectrum where, of course, if you had pre-existing food issues, it's that much more difficult right now with the food scarcity that's happening and, you know, seeing empty grocery store shelves and, seeing people talking about food in this hoarding sort of way and feeling like you need to get it all, get it all now or else you're not going to be able to have it. Like it is incredibly anxiety producing for people. Yeah. And of course that, that comfort of eating is also an issue. Um, you know, it's, it's very funny. We talk about the, um, I mean, I've talked about it on here before about like most of the serotonin produced in your body is in your digestive tract. So, of course, you, we go to food to feel relaxed, to feel good. And yet, at this time, people still feel like that's dangerous behavior because they're, they feel like we I might not have enough. So, it's like this thing that is a comfort gets judged. And also, there was a time when I was in program, for sure, that when... I wasn't eating and I was restricting. I also enjoyed being out of it. And and it took me a while to put that part together because I think deep down I thought me restricting was the the righteous part of me, right? That was like the moral part of me that had good discipline. You were discipline. doing well. You were you were on track and you were doing you were being good. Yeah. yeah, and I was being like really disciplined. And then what I realized was that I was not clear. I I I was hazy and I would restrict to the point of like not really being in my body. And that also was something I was getting a benefit from. And yeah. I'm wondering if at this time people are going through that. I mean, I know that my eating, my sleeping cycle has been just blown up to bits and therefore my, my eating cycle has sort of like went right along with it. And I was just wondering if you, is there any advice that you can give that you feel like is, um, you know, I know we all kind of like want tips and like a lot of times it's not really tips, but maybe a thought to have or um, something to 
suggest that you think about maybe is is better than a tip. I don't want to sound like I'm cosmopolitan trying to get tips out of you. (laughs) I mean, I think my biggest sort of um, piece of advice, I guess, or, you know, something to think about is self-compassion because right now this is a really scary time. We're in a time of unprecedented, you know, it's this unprecedented thing for pretty much all of our lives. Like nobody I know has ever seen anything like this in their lifetime. And, you know, barring people's grandparents, maybe living through the great depression. But, you know, I think this is kind of on that level, right? This is, this is a really unprecedented, scary, anxiety provoking thing. And so having compassion for yourself for trying to cope with that in whatever way you have to do it, whatever way, whatever means you need to use in order to cope. I think it's completely understandable that we're falling back on these old coping mechanisms in some cases, including for some folks restricting and, you know, for other folks turning to food for comfort and maybe binging or feeling like we're emotionally eating, which by the way, like that's a whole separate piece that we could talk about, but emotional eating, the concept of emotional eating is actually pretty fraught. And really researchers think that it it isn't truly about eating to soothe emotions at all so much as eating in response to deprivation, that when we've been restricted, when we've been deprived, we're more likely to turn to food for comfort in difficult times than if we haven't. And non-dieters, people who've kind of always been intuitive eaters or people who've relearned intuitive eating and really clicked back into that don't tend to turn to food for comfort as much in these difficult moments. And, you know, so that's not to say that there's anything wrong with turning to food for comfort, but we're, we're probably going to do that more right now because this is such an unprecedented time and that's okay. Have compassion for that. You know, I'm seeing on the screen, one of my tweets, which is like, you know, it's okay (laughs) if you're eating differently right now, right? It's okay. If your eating is out of whack, it's okay. If you're eating at weird times and weird things and eating more, I think that there's this, um, diet culture pressure on people right now when we are sort of gravitating towards foods that are comforting and eating for pleasure and eating for coping that we're then made to feel like that's bad, that's wrong, that's, you know, we're off plan, we're ruining our diet, we're ruining our health, we're setting ourselves up for disaster. And of course, we're going to gain weight, right? That's the diet culture message is like, oh, no, you're going to gain weight. And that's bad. I mean, it's really so rampant right now. It's so rampant. I mean, and the memes, listen, I I love Biden. Yeah, I love my Broadway friends. I love them. I know that they're going stir crazy. I know they're the hardest working people, literally probably in all of New York. That schedule is brutal. (laughs) They're all athletes. I get it. But if I see one more person write some crazy fat shaming thing about me before, you know, COVID, me after, like, I, and like that literally their biggest anxiety is that they're going to gain weight. It's, or I, I don't even know if it is anxiety, quite honest. Like, I can't really judge it, I guess. But it, some of it feels faux. Some of it feels like, well, we get to make fun of something, so let me make fun of this. Uh, you know, it, it, it. but it really is, like, if there's one message I could get across to anybody who's on my timeline watching this on Facebook <laughs> is to please... Just keep in mind that not everybody has a body that looks like yours. And that's like really a privilege that you even get to say, oh, I hope I don't look this way. Um, and and really like what the reco- repercussions of that is. I mean, it makes me like want to shut down Facebook altogether. Um, oh, yeah. I do want to sort of talk about going from that sort of like social coping mechanism that people are doing to something that's like much more dangerous and and I sent out a Reuters article I'm I'm not posting it on our page because I don't want to spread it around but it does um give a lot of information about the numbers that are coming out of both national COVID patients and specifically New York as compared to New Orleans and it basically makes the claim that obesity is a huge problem and that's why people in New Orleans are dying at a higher higher rate. Um, so fat phobia right now is causing people's lives. Um, I know this for a fact. I'm not like I'm saying this and we will find out all of the numbers later. But I know for a fact that fat phobia is killing people today. It always has been, 
But with COVID, it is literally keeping people from COVID getting the care that they need. Um, and I mean, I, I wish there was a way to sort of investigate that further. But this article kind of gave us a point of view on it. Um, basically, it's saying that chronic illness is what's putting most people in the ICU. Um, and then it gives like a bunch of numbers um, and they say that obesity is part of the problem, but then the percentage of obese patients is actually less than the percentage of the national average of obese people. And I bet if we got numbers specifically in New Orleans that the I, guys, I'm saying obese and I'm, I really just know that I'm mentally putting quotes around it because it's like all a bunch of garbage to me and I don't I know it's a slur um, and I wish I had a boop. I mean, I should just be like. Boop every time I say, it. Um, but just know I'm putting quotes around it, um, and um, and I'm cocking my head to the side when I say it. But I'm sure the percentages of fat people in New Orleans is actually higher than the nation, and the fact that um, 31 percent of those patients are obese is actually lower than the national average, which is 40 percent, and probably way lower than what New Orleans is. So actually, fat people are doing pretty okay. At the ICU. Yes. I mean, not to be a joke, but I, I mean, I can do math. Like, I know what math is. So, do you get to talk to doctors about this? Do you, or when you, like, if you were coming to LA to talk to a panel, like, does that include an audience of doctors? Do you get in the room with people and what are they saying when this is your point of view? I was just curious about that. Yeah, I do sometimes talk to doctors. It's it's interesting because I think there are far fewer doctors doing this work and open to learning about health at every size and intuitive eating and anti-diet stuff than any other profession, like dietitians, therapists, you know, personal trainers, et cetera. I feel like I see far more of those other professions represented in the talks that I do, but I do get, you know, a few awesome medical students or doctors at every talk. And I feel like they are fighting the good fight and doing working so hard to try to bring the health at every size message into their institutions. And it's, it's really sometimes like banging your head against a wall to talk to medical professionals and to talk to doctors specifically. Cause I think that uh, doctors are so entrenched in this idea that so-called obesity and yeah, heavy air quotes around that, right. Quote unquote, obesity is bad for people's health is a disease. You know, this idea that it's supposedly a disease came out of the American medical association in 2013. So it's actually a very new concept and that designation of it as a disease went against the American Medical Association's own advisory board that was dedicated to studying this topic. Of course, they, the advisory board said, don't do it. Don't of call course. it a disease. It's problematic. It's not, it doesn't meet the criteria for a disease. And the American Medical Association went ahead and did it anyway. And what I think that's about is really pharmaceutical industry influence and weight loss industry influence in the medical community. And, you know, there's, I, wrote a whole bunch about this in my book. There's a long history of that with regard to labeling quote unquote obesity as a disease or even calling it that, right? Calling it a health condition of any kind. And so when it comes to this, you know, statistical stuff on the percentage of COVID patients who are in larger bodies versus with other, you know, characteristics and traits, I feel like this is just such an example of fat phobia twisting the, the statistics to its own ends, right? Because like, as we see in this example of the New Orleans article, it's really true. Like only 25% of the people died that, you know, who were, who were fat in that article. And then they talked about how New Orleans had an actually high, a much higher quote unquote obesity rate than the national average, but the national average is 40%. So yeah, fatness actually seems to be protective in that sense. But, you know, other studies and statistics that have been coming out there, like um, in the UK, they were talking about how, you know, 70% of people who are in critical condition with COVID-19 are in larger bodies. And so that means that, quote unquote, obesity must be a risk factor. 70% of people that, you know, more or less in the UK are in larger bodies. And so, you know, it's just that people are being statistically represented 
in COVID-19 critical cases. It's not actually that body size is a risk factor in and of itself. And I think we're in a situation now where there's this absence of real statistical analysis. There's an absence of real scientific evidence because it's all happening so fast. This is all so new. And you know, researchers haven't been able to do like real statistical analysis yet to look at, is there any sort of statistically significant difference here in these population sizes You know, for people who have diabetes, people who have heart disease, people who are larger bodied, you know, there is a little bit of evidence, at least on diabetes and heart disease, showing that, that those do seem to be risk factors. But I think that they're conflated. Those things are, are always lumped together with body size, right? The article we're talking about was like obesity-related conditions, such as, you know, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And it's like, no, these are not the same thing, right? We need to stop blaming body size for those conditions. Weight stigma and weight cycling can explain any excess risk we see in people in larger bodies with those conditions or for those conditions. And, you know, it's clear in this article too that like a much higher percentage of people who had heart disease or diabetes or lung disorders, pre-existing lung issues were the ones at greater risk. And the people in larger bodies, it actually seemed to be a protective factor. Although even one of those things, I forget whether it was diabetes or heart disease, also seemed a little bit protective in the sense that fewer people who had, you know, a smaller percentage of people were dying or having critical conditions in COVID-19 than the population who had that condition. So, you know, statistics are, are so, uh, it's so important to do real statistical analysis and look at the numbers. And like you said, you know, we can do math, right? We can, can figure this out, but it just floors me how few journalists who are reporting on this stuff and how few people in media and social media are actually picking up on that and being like, hey, wait a minute, this actually doesn't, say that so-called obesity is a risk factor or quote unquote overweight and obesity are risk factors. This says that either people in larger bodies are just being statistically represented in the population of people with COVID-19 or potentially those, those larger body sizes are actually somewhat protective factors. So, so I'm curious about what should the headline be? You know, if we're, if we're, you know, part of what happens is, uh, you know, people don't read articles anymore. They read the headlines and they think they know. So if, if we were going to sort of talk about this, this headline, I'm thinking about, um, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, articles that I've seen that, that are making this connection and, um, and making this saying that there is a connection between obesity and COVID-19. What, what, what would an alternative headline be to sort of correct some of that misinformation? It's a great question. I think like for this article we're talking about from Reuters, the headline would be larger body size or higher body weight may be a protective factor for <laughs> fatal COVID-19. <laughs> um, and in some of the other cases that I mentioned, you know, it could be something like uh, populations of COVID-19 patients in the ICU are about as fat as we would expect, given the <laughs> distribution of body sizes in the population. Nothing right. to see here. Right. Right. For sure. Um, I want to take, is it okay, Kurt, can I put you through a little break? Because I do want to, is that okay? We're going to take a little breather yeah. so we can all drink water. And um, and I want to come back and I want to talk about um, the next steps and like, how do we start a lobby basically to lobby the government to change? <laughs> That's all. We'll be dealing That's with that. That's a very simple question. We'll simple, do that simple, one so easy. For the last 10 minutes. <laughs> we'll be back in this. <laughs> After show, after show, hopefully we have 10 people, 10 people giving $5 on the Patreon. If 10 people give $5 a month, we could do a whole season without giving money, getting money for people we don't trust. Isn't that nice? Guys, I'm literally trying to pimp myself to dating apps to try to get us money. Ooh. I'm scared. Don't make me do that. Ooh. Just give us five dollars. After show, after show. Hopefully after we have ten after. people. Ten people giving five dollars. If ten people give five dollars a month, we could do a whole season without giving money, getting money yeah. for people we don't trust. Isn't that nice, guys? I'm literally trying to pimp myself to dating apps. To try to get us money. Ooh. I'm scared. Don't make me do that. Ooh. Just give us five dollars. 
Aftershock. Hi guys, it's Kathy from Plus This. I'm getting ready for season five. Can you believe it's been five seasons already? We start back March 12th at 6 p.m. at UBN Go. Per usual, this season, I'm not just gonna have one host, I'm gonna have all the hosts. It's gonna be Kathy and Friends. And more importantly, it's going to be Kathy and Friends and you because we're dedicating one whole segment to have a conversation with one of our viewers about how fatness is perceived in the world for them and like what challenges they have. So I want to talk about it. I want to help you if I can. I want to take the things I've learned from amazing guests over four seasons and start to help you out. So email me at plusthisshow at gmail.com or DM me in my Instagram at plusthisshow and you could be on Plus This Show. I'll see you March 12th. It's so weird watching yourself look exactly the same as you do, but just with a different thing of clothing on. <laughs> I was like so confused. I was like, is she back? I can't hear anything. That's I what know. I thought too. I was like, no, 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 but she's wearing something different now. That's, that's what's happening. I know. It's just like, it doesn't change. I, I, I think I've plateaued, guys. I think this is all you're getting. This is what it's going to be. <laughs> For the rest of time. It's uh, amazing. I'll take um, it. Well, thank you. Uh, so, the, the I mean, I'm so glad you talked about that stuff that happened in 2013. Um, I think that we are coming to a place where all kinds of systems feel like they're falling apart. And that is really kind of exciting. I also am excited about the amount of organizing that could happen at this time because people literally don't have anything else to do. Um, and there is so much injustice that is sort of bubbling to the surface that we can no longer walk across the cracks of like it is bubbling up and like it is going to change or we're, it's going to end us. I think, I think it's like now or never. Um, what, I am wondering, what do you, like, if we had, like, a dream platform, um, I think undoing what they did in 2013 for sure is something I would love to see. You know, in Massachusetts, they just had um, the state legislature accepted a bill about anti-discrimination for size and height of people. Um, so, and, and hopefully that will be voted on. I mean, I'm, I'm going to lobby and try to see if I can help them with in any kind of way about that. What, what do you, what things do you see that exist in the medical, um, industry, especially insurance, I'm sure is like all kinds of crazy, but like, what things do we, could we like work on learning more about in order to untangle it i think definitely when you're saying like taking obesity out of the equation when it comes to health is a big one um and i think that it's going to take our government to have to start that movement um and i'm just curious about like what other things do you feel like are problems that even just in your practice that you you see people sort of like like repeating the things they hear and going, well, actually, the truth is this. I was just curious about me. What are your like? If you can give me like top three, you don't have to give all oh my of gosh. them to me. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> it's like ugh, I feel like that maybe the top one is my doctor told me I needed to lose weight for you know insert health condition here: diabetes, heart disease, um, reducing risk of cancer, pre-diabetes, which is actually a bogus diagnosis. And I talk more about that on the podcast. I have, uh, if you search for pre-diabetes on my website, I have a whole thing about that. Um, but, you know, having, yeah, there's the podcast. Um, <laughs> having people, you know, doctors telling people that they need to lose weight to manage certain health conditions, I think is the biggest problem that I see. And if we could teach doctors and other healthcare professionals, and that includes, you know, naturopaths, physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners, anyone who's like a primary care resource for people, if we can teach them about weight stigma and the harmful effects that it has on people's health and help them to just remove any talk of weight and body size from their 
interventions with people, I think that would go a really long way. And, you know, I do have clients who found doctors or nurse practitioners or naturopaths or what have you, who are able to agree to take weight out of the equation, take that off the table, are able to take restrictive eating off the table for people who've had disordered relationships with food and don't want to, you know, be subject to an elimination diet because they have IBS or told to, you know, cut out XYZ foods because they have migraines or whatever it might be. Um, you know, there are doctors willing to listen and willing to do that work. And I think as patients and as clients, we can advocate for ourselves and we can talk to our providers and ask them to agree to that, you know, to take weight out of the equation and to take restrictive eating practices off the table. Cause there's so many things our providers can do for us that, you know, our every sort of um, health condition that's out there, really, there is an evidence-based intervention that has nothing to do with weight and has nothing to do with food, right? There are physiological things that people can do. There are medications people can take. There are other, you know, I hesitate to say lifestyle changes because it's such a diety term, but I'm talking about things like, you know, for acid reflux, wearing loose fitting pants, elevating the head of your bed, you know, um, not eating spicy food two hours before you go to bed, things that are really simple that have nothing to do with changing the type of food you eat or the amount of food you eat or, you know, shrinking your body in any way, but that are about, you know, helping your, helping you promote health in whatever way. So I think that's one thing is, is, you know, getting doctors and other um, medical practitioners on board with weight inclusive, weight neutral interventions. I think another thing, I mean, I don't think that anytime soon, we're going to be able to get quote unquote obesity off the American Medical Association's agenda of, you know, the, the, the label of the disease of disease, I think is around for the time being. And I think we're going to have to chip away at that through larger scale cultural change that is going to start with these little interventions with our doctors, asking them to practice health at every size with us. Um, but I think one thing for insurance purposes, because insurance companies are a real enforcer of this idea of BMI as a, a so-called disease state or something that needs to be intervened upon, um, telling doctors or whoever, you know, nurses, whoever is weighing you at the doctor's office that I'd prefer not to be weighed, right? I decline to be weighed. You can write refused in my chart if you like, because insurance companies pressure medical institutions to include weight as a biometric anthropometric measure in addition to, you know, height and blood pressure and other things, oxygen in your blood, and they're supposed to include at least three or, you know, a lot of insurance companies require that. So if you can say a refuse for the weight and get them to take other things, your temperature, your blood oxygen, your blood pressure, your height, if, if that's possible without stepping on the scale, that will satisfy the insurance requirements. And that will send a message that, you know, weight is something that you don't want to have be part of your healthcare. And I know that that is easier to do for people who have more thin privilege or people who are fat, who are fat accepting and able to advocate for themselves and feel comfortable doing that in a doctor's office with someone who is kind of an authority figure and might, you know, say something negative if you refuse to step on the scale. So do what feels right to you, do what feels within your power. And if you're someone who is struggling and doesn't have that privilege, don't feel pressure to have to do that, but let people who have the privilege, who have the um, thick skin and the knowledge and the sort of, you know, years in the trenches of learning fat acceptance, let us advocate for you. Let us, you know, refuse to be weighed so that more and more people will, more and more doctor's offices will become wise to the fact that the scale shouldn't be a part of the equation in any um, healthcare setting. And, you know, that way, if, so, if a doctor has heard someone say, I don't do scales. I refuse to be weighed. I love that phrase, by the way, like I don't do scales. I say that all the time <laughs> at the doctor's office and they're, you know, usually give me a pass. Um, if they've heard me say that, or if they've heard you, you all say that, then the person who comes in, who's maybe feels less able to advocate for themselves, but wants to try and dip a toe in, you know, the nurse might be like, do you do scales? Are you okay with the scale? And then that person that opens the door for that person to say, no, I'd rather not. Mm. That's so interesting because I've heard about turning around and not looking at the like people who are like, I, I'm not going to look at my weight and I don't want you to tell me what my weight is, but really to refuse. And, you know, it's a hard search, especially out here in L.A., you know. For being a huge city, Hayes doctors are hard to come by. I had a couple of um, Hayes who are very active in the actual website 
reach out to me and ask me to start a campaign because they wanted people in L.A. like to really get people's names on the Hayes, you know, um, directory and, and let them know. And I think that's a really that's really great. And, and I think that there's a way like when you were saying like to make it I don't do scales, you can put that I review. and like even just with that information of I know I can refuse and I am refusing. Because I don't think people, you know, you go there usually because you are worried about something, you know. I mean, I know I don't go to the doctor unless I'm worried about something. I never go just cause. I never am just like <laughs> strolling into the doctor being like, I'm fierce today. How you doing, doctor? Like, that's not my thing. <laughs> so so you're already like worried. And I think you're right. Like people just kind of go in being like, I just don't want to be worried anymore. I want to be told that everything's okay. So yeah. To have that bravery or to have like the script ready to go, right, Nikki? I was going to say the script is really helpful, and um, uh, you know, and and the the I don't do scales is a, a is, is I kind of say it very similarly as like I don't I don't do getting weighed, and and I have over time taught my doctor and her staff. They ask me now when I come in, are we getting weighed today? And I say no. She's also my doctor was also really receptive after I had. I ended up having weight loss surgery and a whole bunch of crap happened. And I almost died. And after that, off, after that experience, my doctor got really interested in learning how to treat me here instead of trying to change how I look. And so she, she's worked hard to, you know, to, to, to change her language. And I'm super grateful for that because, you know, I know people, fat folks who, who haven't been to the doctor's, in decades because they're just so afraid of having to hear that if you just lost weight you'd feel better speech yeah yeah Christy, and I that's wanted- that's like one of the tolls of weight stigma you know Ugh. that's one of the huge physical tolls of weight stigma is people not going to the doctor because they don't feel safe and people even when they go to the doctor getting misdiagnosed and getting told that their condition is because of their weight getting told to lose weight instead of being given evidence-based medicine my friend and colleague Regan Chastain who I know has been on your show before has we love her yes amazing amazing and you know has told the story of of going to the doctor for strep throat and being told to lose weight as though that somehow was connected or a cure for a strep throat which is ridiculous Um, And so, you know, I think that if, if those of us who have the privilege and the knowledge and sort of the standing in fat acceptance can advocate for better treatment, even if it's as small as just saying, you know, I don't do scales or educating your doctor on health at every size, I think we can hopefully help people down the line not be subjected to such fat phobia at the doctor's office that results in worse health outcomes for them. Yeah, Christy, I wanted to ask you while we have a few minutes left. Um, you know, there is a, there is a, what is, I mean, what is the word? Um, an issue, maybe I'll just call it an issue, yeah. that comes up when thin people are given the mic about fat issues. Um, there, there's, there is sort of a, um, contingency of fat activists that really want it to be fat people who say the things, um, and are given the people to be the center of that conversation. I was just wondering, um, do you come across that? Do you, do you ever, um, have somebody say, you know, I think that, what you do is great, but I really would rather hear it from a fat person. Definitely. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard that in various forms. I've heard, you know, people who are really against me even existing and doing the work I do at all, you know, who'd rather I just go away. And there's people who, you know, would say, well, I'd rather, I'd rather work with a dietitian who's in a larger body, or I'd rather work with, um, you know, whatever health professional who's fat and not see a thin provider. And I totally understand that. I, I get that 100%. I get why people feel that way. The thing is, you know, I think from my perspective, coming from the health professions and also coming from journalism, that's my original background, I think that there is a certain amount of thin privilege that sort of opens the door for these conversations in those spaces that shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be reserved for thin people to be able to talk about these things or to be able to get articles published or be able to, you know, get in the ears of doctors and fellow dietitians and have them listen. But the sad reality is because we live in such a fat phobic society, I have this key, I have this privilege that unlocks that door. And I've had people tell me, people who eventually 
you know, became fat activists in their own right, who are fat, who are marginalized in other ways. Like, you know, I was willing to listen to you. I came into this work because of your podcast, because I saw your picture on that little square in the podcast charts. And I thought, you know, maybe she has some secret that can teach me how to be thin. And I wasn't going to listen to someone who looked like me at that point. And through your work and through being introduced to all of these amazing fat activists that you talk with, I was able to come into my own fat acceptance and fat liberation practice. And now I'm doing this work. And, you know, I think that that is my role. I think my role is to sort of be the, um, you know, the place to catch people who are early in that process, who aren't willing to hear these messages from someone in a larger body. And hopefully I can, you know, what I really try to do on my podcast is have such a diversity of people talking about these issues, you know, primarily fat people. I try to have, have mostly fat activists and, you know, people in larger bodies talking about these issues, but also trans people, people of color, people with disabilities, older people, people of all kinds of diverse backgrounds that aren't, given enough of a platform and me because of the way I look and because of the unearned privileges that I happen to be born with, people are more willing to take it from me. And so I'm like, here, listen to this person here, listen to that person. And hopefully with that, you know, using that privilege to pass people along to the, the activists who are doing this work, who are in a more marginalized position, it will help folks start to listen to them and start to recognize that their opinion is valuable and important and, you know, go deeper into this work of, of their own healing and relationships with food in their bodies. That's so great. I, I can't believe that 50 minutes has gone by so fast. This is so crazy. And, and I, I was, you know, as a good friend of mine, a friend of mine uh, works for the Anti-Defamation League and one time I came to him about an issue I was having with this sort of people having narrow feelings about who should be saying what, um, because I'm, you know, I'm very, very average. I'm very average sized. So I, there are people who are um, really, really much more marginalized than I am any given day. And he basically said he got advice from someone who'd been doing the bias work for a really long time, who said there are many roads to the same place. And I appreciate you and the road that you're making. So thank you, Christy, for being such an ally. And I, God, I'm going to go back and listen to this because so much of what you said, I want to sink into my brain so that I can like say it to other people. <laughs> and, and definitely check out Christy's social media because she gives you all these wonderful little bite-sized quotes that you can give to people when they're giving you fat phobic bullshit. Like you could just be like, oh, true. really? Well, um, Christy Harrison said, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And her uh, podcast is Food Psych. Her book is Anti-Diet. Get all of the things. Christy, when you come back here, we can't wait to host you and actually drink a thing with you. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. Thank you so much. It's thank so you. To Stay talk safe. You and Nikki, thank you for being here. Um, guys, I, I'm trying to do my best to do this every other week because money is tight. But if you want to help me out and give me a little Patreon, I may be able to get back to it every week. But for now, I have to say, see you in two weeks live here at Plus This. Take care. <laughs>